Welcome to Conversations About Care, a podcast for pediatric clinical providers. Hi, this is Sandy Hassing, and I'm the Medical Director for the American Academy of Pediatrics Institute for Healthy Childhood Weight. And I'm excited to share today's conversation, which is part of our Clinical Practice Guideline Implementation Series. Throughout this series, you'll be able to hear from pediatricians across the country, many of whom have been instrumental in developing the CPG, or who have been out there in practice and working on obesity care and treatment. Our hope is that you can listen to these conversations and be inspired to think about how you might be able to integrate or improve obesity care and treatment within your practice. Stay tuned. So I want to welcome everyone today to our podcast, and I'm exceptionally excited to be speaking today with Dr. Katie Queen. Katie is a pediatrician, board certified in pediatric obesity medicine. She is both medical director for the Center for Weight and Nutrition for Our Lady of Lake Children's Hospital in Baton Rouge and works in a pediatric clinic in Bogalusa, Louisiana. And Katie has experience taking care of children and families with obesity in both settings. And I'm really excited today, Katie, to have you share your experience with us. Thank you so much for having me. And I wanted to just kind of highlight, this is really an honor to be working with you. We both met, I guess, right before COVID. And so it's really come full circle. We can continue to do the work now that COVID's behind us, hopefully. Absolutely. And I know that we had, for our audience, we had set up a trip. I was going to come down and visit Katie and her crew in New Orleans and COVID sort of got in the way of that. We're still hoping to really have a grand old time in New Orleans in the future. So Katie, tell us how this is working for you because you're really working out of two two different settings when you take care of children and patients. So yeah, I'm very interested in in both how you got into those settings, both of those settings, and how obesity treatment looks like in and what obesity treatment looks like in both those settings. Mm-hmm. So I guess when I think back to my interest in pediatric obesity, it started probably in college. I took one nutrition class and I was just, I loved it. Uh, I've always enjoyed food. I've always enjoyed eating at new restaurants and cooking. And I sort of enjoyed exercise. So the whole wellness and idea of fitness and nutrition just really appealed to me. And so um, in college, I took a lot of nutrition classes, was pre-med, went to medical school, decided, you know, I really love nutrition and, I, and, and what fits better with nutrition and fitness and lifestyle change and wellness than working with patients with obesity. So I kind of led that way and then came a pediatrician and realized that at the time, which was back in 2012, at the time, the only route to become an obesity specialist was technically to become either an endocrinologist or a GI doctor. They had not had the obesity board certification. And and really, I'm not the fancy thinker like endocrinologists are. And I didn't really like the stool stuff and scoping with the GI. So I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to do general peds for a while. So I went and worked at Texas Children's for a general pediatric clinic and just really dug down to the trenches. And there's a lot of obesity care just there in general pediatrics. So then let me fast forward three kids later and I'm now 10 years out of residency and 
I just felt that calling still to do something and to really be more of an expert in the area. And so when I found out about the American Board of Obesity Medicine, I said, you know what, I'm going to do it. So I didn't just say I'm going to do it. I, I laid out a plan um, and I'm happy to share that with anyone who's listening. I laid out like a study plan. It, it, it was about a year of taking CME courses and studying and, and I just made it happen. And it was tough. It was a tough test, but I feel like what that did was give me the confidence that I, I felt that I needed to be an expert in the field. Now, your question about what I do, I wear two hats. I'm a pediatrician in a rural town in Louisiana called Bogalusa, Louisiana, famous for the Bogalusa Heart Study. And that's where I do the bread and butter cases of, of patients you see for a well check or uh, they're there for their um, snoring and then you bring up the weight and, and you start to discuss obesity. And, and it, I felt like that was great. I was, I was covering a lot of ground with patients. I was able to see them monthly, which is what I usually do. But I just felt like I wasn't able to really get past the lifestyle change alone. And as something that I really learned in getting my board certification is that sometimes the biology and the metabolism is more complicated and it's not enough sometimes for the family just to eat healthier and be active. And so I decided I wanted to do more of a medical specialty clinic. I talked to our administration at the Children's Hospital in Baton Rouge, and they were very, very supportive. I told them my vision was to create a multidisciplinary sort of tertiary care program. And they said yes. And so we started to work on it. Actually, 2020, it took over a year to just do the planning. Anything from creating templates to creating the schedule to figuring out who was going to be our dietitian and how was the payroll going to go and, you know, all those details, creating a pro forma, which I had never even known what that meant, but that's apparently a business plan you have to create with administration. Really just, you know, just try to be patient and just let everything evolved. And it took about a year and a half before we opened the doors. And so I'm proud to say we now have a true multidisciplinary clinic in the Children's Hospital in Baton Rouge that I help lead. And that's myself. That's We have two dietitians who rotate and we have a social worker, which by chance she came to us. She had no pediatric experience, neither did she have weight management experience. But I think my point in saying that is that you just start with what you have. We're literally building the plane while we fly it, they say. You know, we're, we're not perfect. We're still constantly changing things. We started out with 20-minute visits, and then I said, wait, no, we need 40-minute visits. And then we decided to throw in some virtual visits, and we're literally just kind of adapting to the needs of the patients. And so Baton Rouge Clinic, which is the multidisciplinary clinic, looks very different than my Bogalusa Clinic. And the way it looks different is that obviously I have a lot more structure around clinic in Baton Rouge. I, I have these four or five page intake forms that we give the family. We do the FNPA, which is the food and nutrition physical activity screen. We do weight circumference. We do, you know, we do everything there. We have the dietitian meet with them. The social worker does some behavioral like mindfulness training and things like that. It's more structured. Go to my clinic in, in Bogalusa if I have a patient with obesity. It's pretty much me. I'm all of those hats. I'm the dietitian. I'm the social worker. And that's okay because I know the patients. They know me. They don't even really want a referral out to a dietitian a lot of times. And it's just, it's more, I guess, slower and it's more piecewise, like li li little bit by little bit rather than let's all get everything done at one time. And so while the success might be slower, it's, it's still happening. And so I think both settings, the point is, I think, Sandy, that you can do obesity management in 
both an, a fancy multidisciplinary clinic, but you can do it right in your clinic every day. You don't have to have a board certification. What that's given me is the confidence to prescribe medicine. So I do prescribe anti-obesity medicine. It's given me the confidence to understand the comorbidities more and to consider bariatric surgery if needed, but it's not required. You can get started anywhere that you are. So Katie, it's just so phenomenal to listen to you because you you are your own expert. You have provided your own <laughs> tertiary care expertise for your own pediatric practice. And I just love that. And uh, I'm, I'm resonating with you on so many levels. When I started taking care of kids with obesity in the 80s, you think there was no obesity training when you started. There was, obesity wasn't even on the radar screen. So I did what you did. I learned from well, what was happening in the adult world. I learned from my patients. A lot of times I didn't have all the staff I wanted. I took care of a lot of those dietitian functions or social work functions. So you build. So in your practice in Bogalusa, as you're taking care of patients with obesity, does your team, does your primary care team, your nurses or your assistants get involved in this in any way? Or do you just do this on your own? Or how does that work? I, I wish that they could. I would love that. However, we're short staffed, just like most clinics uh, in the country. And we have staff turnover. And so we can barely get the Bright Futures guidelines down. You know, I would love if they could go in and teach my plate or, or do some sort of education, but we just don't have the staff and the time. We do have some residents, some family medicine residents from LSU. And so I'll, I'll take I'll have them create goals with the family. We have Epic and I love to use, you can input goals. So we do a lot of tracking. We give the patients tracking sheets, but yeah, our staff, it just doesn't really have time. Recently, I did train my staff to be able to do genetic testing, the uncovering rare obesity genetic testing for kids with severe obesity before the age of about five. So now um, my staff is, is good with that. We've got the FedEx pickup and we got all that worked out, but it's, it's little bits at a time. You figure out what your staff can do and you also have to figure out what they're interested in. Now, tell me about that because, you know, when I always found that I could, I could train my staff around obesity, but what I really wanted my staff is to have them be interested in these children and be empathic with these children. And then we could, you know, expand their roles as, as we needed. So um, how did you thinking about the genetic testing, which is something you obviously wanted to do, that seemed to be a good fit for your staff. Was it because it was a discreet kind of thing that they could do and accomplish? Is that what made them resonate with that? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think when you can really talk to the staff about the medical aspects of the weight, and you can talk about how there are some genetic causes, how the biology and the metabolism is different, how the set point the hunger set point and the piety set point is different. So all of those things, like I'll even sometimes purposely talk to the patient with the staff in the room about, look, you know, you've been working really, really hard, but I don't want you to get discouraged about the weight, you know, because your biology is just sort of working against you a little bit. So, so don't get discouraged. And so you sort of have to pull the nurse and the MA into the room and sort of like let them hear what you're telling the family. But I think the genetics has really been eye-opening because one of my MAs, she says, wait, you mean that something genetic could cause their weight gain? And we actually had it was so interesting. Last week, we had two one-year-olds on the same day, back-to-back, -back, who had obesity, uh, BMI, 99th or above, 
percentiles. And my staff said, hey, can I go get the genetic test kit and do it? I was like, yes. So so I think they're starting to see that like there really is something different in some children. It's not just that they're being fed too much sugar. So Katie, this is so, so important. And I want to stay here for a minute because you're both demystifying obesity for your patients by explaining the biologic and physiologic aspects, but you're also demystifying it for your staff, right? Mm -hmm. By helping them understand this is medical, this is biology, this is altered physiology. And I think what you're saying here is so important because it's important for the patient, of course, to understand it. But I think by helping your staff understand it, they're becoming engaged and they're becoming knowledgeable, but they're also becoming seeing the patient maybe a little differently than they might have before. Is that how how you're seeing it? Yeah, exactly. I think it takes some knowledge base and then it takes really engaging them and and helping them feel like they're part of the team and the continuity. So, you know, my my patients that come back for obesity see me pretty much every month. I have patients who've been seeing me monthly for a year. And so when they come back and maybe their BMI is down a little, the staff, we're all like kind of applauding and, and we're all happy and sort of a team effort. As I think really the em- emphasis, you, you don't have to have your staff do the management or the nutrition education, but you you definitely want to celebrate successes with them so they feel like they're part of the team. I can't say how important this is because they're the first, when my patients used to walk up to the front desk and, you know, greet the, the person signing them in who was happy to see them and interested in them, it made such a difference to the patients and for patients to, to feel like everybody was pulling for them on the team. When you, when you think about your weight management clinic, do you feel that you're seeing a di- whole different category of patients in your, your weight management clinic at Our Lady of Lake, or you're just able to apply more intense treatment to the patients that, that are able to get there? How is that playing out? So I'm definitely seeing patients with more severe obesity. So I think I recently calculated the average BMI out of the 100 patients we've seen in the past year was 35. So that's going to be like stage two obesity. And so most of the patients are coming in and they have already worked on lifestyle treatment with or without their primary care doctor. Family comes in feeling like they've tried everything. They've been to multiple doctors. Many of them have already been to endocrine or GI. Many of them have tried, you know, online, but they come, I feel like the difference is the patients over there, while they're more severe, they come more ready to change. Mm. There's something about being on the wait list for three months plus, which is our, <laughs> that sort of primes their mind, like, okay, we're going to go ready to roll. Um, and so that's been nice is sort of the eagerness to jump in. And, and many times they're already ready to consider medicine, which I'm fine with. Like, I don't ever, I don't require that someone fail lifestyle treatment to get medicine. If BMI is 30 or above, or their BMI is 27 or above with a serious comorbidity, they qualify for anti-obesity medicine for age 12 and up. And so the point is, I meet them where they are. And if they're ready for medicine, we do medicine. If they, you know, we always want to have them do lifestyle treatment. That's 
the backbone. They come at different places. And so that's been interesting. And it's sort of like a puzzle. Like I sort of feel like Dr. House sometimes, like they come to me and they've got this super complex chart with a long list of things. And I feel like it's sort of like adult medicine sometimes compared to my clinic, uh, pediatric clinic. It's like I'm catching it a lot earlier. I'm discussing it a lot earlier. Maybe the BMI is only 95th percentile. It's not 99th plus percentile. And so I feel like I have to sort of nudge the family a little more and they're not quite ready always to make changes. And so that's just been a little interesting in the readiness to change. Yeah. And I think that that what you said is so important. We're really meeting our patients where they are, no matter where they are. So there are some patients who have suffered a long time and still are not as ready to make change as some patients who just, you know, had a blip on their weight and, and are, are ready to go. Can you talk a little bit about how you describe obesity to your patients, like what it is? So I rarely use the term obesity. I usually, I usually just use the word weight. And if I have a like sort of a medical family, maybe a nurse that the mom's a nurse or something like that, I might throw out the term obesity. But I don't really use the term. Technically, obesity is excess fat or adiposity, but I don't really use those terms. I just kind of say extra weight. I say you know. Uh, tell me a little bit about your weight journey and how do you feel like the extra weight is affecting your body and your health? And, and a lot of times the kid says, it's not affecting me. And then you, you sort of have to pull out the growth chart. Well, is it okay if we just kind of look and see how you're growing? And then I feel like showing the growth chart really is what kind of drives it home for a lot of families. You start with the length. I always start with the length. Say, look, you're tall because almost all patients with obesity are tall. You sort of have a start with a positive and a strength and they're like, yeah, I'm tall. And then, and then you kind of show the mismatch and you can show, you know, this is where it would be if it matched and it's sort of like not matching. So, so your body's sort of um, feeling a little heavy and weighed down by the weight and, and that's, that can cause problems. And I, I really focus on like, we may not get you to a healthy weight per the books, but we can get you to the healthiest version that we feel you can be. And, and I, I try not to focus just on the number in the BMI. It's more about reducing the comorbidities, reducing the prediabetes and maybe the liver enzymes and, and the cholesterol, things like that. I try to have more of a less weight focus, more health focus. And do you find that the families respond pretty well to that broader focus on health? Definitely, definitely. Most families on their mind, I'll tell you the top is the diabetes. There, most families are going to resonate with the diabetes because it's, it's in a lot of families. And, and so I think that if you can, if you can connect with, okay, we're trying to prevent diabetes, we're trying to prevent diseases for your child, that's where they seem to connect rather than get you to a healthy weight. Yeah. I always thought when I took the family history, invariably there was hypertension or heart disease or diabetes somewhere in there that the family was concerned. They didn't want that. They didn't want the the health outcome that they had in the grandparents or maybe even had themselves. Katie, what do you do when a family comes in, as many of our families do, where there's one child that has obesity and maybe another child or two that doesn't have obesity? How do you handle that situation? Mm. With the, with the I actually, I actually like when that's true because I can sort of really emphasize the biology and especially to the kid and say, you know, you ever notice that there's kids of all different shapes and sizes and, and so your brother, your sister, you know, why is it that they eat the same uh, food that you eat at home, but they don't have extra weight 
and they'll kind of think for a minute and then I'll say, it's, it's biology and, you know, sort of make it like fun. Like, you know what that word means? And, and sort of like emphasize biology and genetics and, and helping the kids realize that, oh my gosh, I had a, I had a patient last week. I was almost in tears. She was uh, about 15 and we talked about that. She had siblings who were healthy weight. She, she had obesity and I went through full spiel. You know, this is biology. This is nothing that you did. This is nothing that anybody did. You you did everything you could do to, to make changes and it's still not working. And she looked at me and she had tears in her eyes and she said, you mean it's not my fault? Mm-hmm. And I just, I was just floored because I'm like, no one has ever told this girl in her life that it's not her fault. And that just really, that's the message you want to send that it's not their fault. They didn't do anything wrong to get to where they are. Yes, we still have some responsibility to work on lifestyle change, but it's not their fault. It's it's what you're sort of biology born with. Katie, I love that because in that one case, you totally reframed a situation from, you know, blame and maybe guilt to biology. And then once you do that, the patient then can say, it's, it's biology. It's not my failing. It's my condition. And then move, move to say, what can I do about that? And I I think that's so important. And I always felt that was so important to do, you know, you're doing that in the context, the parents are there, the child is there. So when you're telling the child that you're also sending a strong message to the parents, right? That this is not the child's fault. Because many times they have obesity as well. And so you can see the wheels turning they're thinking, wow, that goes for me too. Yeah. And I think that's very important. So let's stay with this scenario for a minute, because then you have a child who you, you know, may want to make lifestyle change and you want to help them make lifestyle change, but you have a couple other siblings who (laughs) are thinking maybe why, why do we have to do that? How do you handle that in the family situation? Yeah, that's tough, especially if those siblings are not there. I mean, if they're there, sort of have this team approach. Okay. So the patient, he's the quarterback, and we're like the, the sideline coaches and cheerleaders, and we're all coaching him along, and we have to be good, you know, good role models for him, so we don't want to tempt him with the unhealthy snacks and drinks, but if their kids, the other kids are not there, that is hard. Um, I, I don't believe in strict dieting for kids, unless they come to me wanting a specific diet. I don't prescribe a specific diet, so I think it's more just about teaching the family moderation and and teaching them that, look, you can have some ice cream on Friday night with your siblings and that's okay, but we just can't do that every night. And it's sort of, I I really am hesitant to cause disordering, especially in those younger preteen children. And, and I see it happen. Like sometimes they've met with a dietitian a couple of times and then they come back and see me. And it's not that the dietitian is, is causing it, but they're, they're giving a lot of rules and guidelines and and sort of I sort of have to take a step back and say well look you don't have to do everything perfectly this is just sort of general ideas about how to do things but I think goal making is key no matter if you're in a multidisciplinary clinic or if you're in your primary care clinic I really recommend that you have the family leave with one or two goals and it's got to be something that they want to do so I just leave it to them I say look do you want to make goals today yes okay so how about let's make one nutrition goal? Okay, what's that going to be? You want to drinks? You sort of guide them, but you but you don't tell them. And then mm-hmm. with activity, and so they literally leave with one or two things that they know they can do. I have them write it down, 
I give them a, a tracker, which is basically a sheet where they can log everything. And when they come back, I say, hey, did you work on your goals? And I give prizes. So it's sort of an external reward, but uh, I'm hoping eventually they'll, they'll have their own internal motivation. You know, we always gave goals. And I always said to the staff, you know, if you're seeing your own patient back, but, you know, if the patient's seeing one of your team, I said, please, the first thing is acknowledge the goals because it's hard for a patient to have worked on goals and people not to acknowledge them. But I also think that celebrating goals is really important and celebrating the trying of goals and the accomplishing of goals. Like you tried it, that's great. It's not so easy to try to do a goal, you know, and and the accomplishment of goals. And, you know, I think that we don't talk about this much, but I remember saying to my team, if the patient doesn't leave the, the visit happier than they came, then we're missing something. And by happier, I mean feeling more positive about themselves, feeling that there's hope, feeling that things can be done, feeling not blamed, you know, not giddy happy, but better, better about the situation. Because I think that that feeling that there's hope, that something can change, that they're not being blamed is really foundational to them being able to do the hard work that, that they're asking of themselves, right, mm -hmm. to do. Yeah, I, I agree. I think just setting the expectation that, that you know, we're going to work on things. If, you know, we'll see you monthly if that's okay with you. But, you know, if this doesn't work and, and we don't see a lot of change in your in your weight or in your labs in three to six months, that's okay. That doesn't mean you failed. But there's more that we can do for you. We can, you know, we can consider seeing a dietitian if, if I'm in my primary care. Or we can consider community programs. So I do like to refer to community programs if I can find them. For example, we have the Agricultural Center, LSU Agriculture Center that has, they have nutrition programs in every uh, parish of Louisiana. So that's always a great resource. So sometimes it takes like, you know, what else can we do maybe to help? And then of course, sometimes it's medicine. So if this doesn't work after three to six months, like we can go back and talk about medicine and we can talk about something maybe a little bit more intense. And so it's just always letting them know that there's something else I can help you with. And so that way they can keep coming back. Right. And then that knowing that it's an ongoing thing, it's not a one and done. You're going to keep there and work with them. How did you find out about your agricultural extension or how, how did, because a lot of us don't know who, who, where our offices are. So how did you find out? So I actually have, I'm big on community involvement and community service. And so I, I was attending a group of community organizations that was coming together through a grant actually for about years while being here in Bogalusa. And so they, I would meet them at the meetings and we actually did some, some joint programs on nutrition and things like that. So then I found out that that exists in almost every state. The Agricultural Center basically runs the USDA programs and they're funded. And so that's a great thing. If you, if you're not, if you don't know where to refer patients in the community, you can start with that. I'm actually working with with the LSU Ag Center to create an adolescent specific program because what they have right now is more geared towards adults. And so we're working on, on an, an adolescent specific. And then I recently learned about the American Diabetic Association, the ADA, has a great program called Project Power for the younger kids. And that's always a hard, a hard age, you know, when they're like five to 
to 11 and, you know, sort of don't have that concrete thinking to really teach them nutrition, but they're excited. So that program is specifically for that age range. And you can, you can refer them online and they can sign up for a virtual, uh, I think it's weekly or bi-weekly visits. And there's actually, uh, I think, three or four sessions per year. So that's a great resource as well. But there's always more no matter where you live. You just have to look for them. Yeah, no, that's that's wonderful because it's not it's a real team effort, not only in the practice, but in the community. Um, have you at, reached out to your YMCA at all in your area? Yes, I, I have. We have a small YMCA in the rural town where I am. And of course, we've got several in Baton Rouge. And and so I think we're building on the idea of like of of having a program. But again, that takes time. It takes engagement. It takes somebody who's motivated. It takes funding sometimes. And so what they have right now is they do have some cooking classes and that's that's great. And we're working on potentially having some after school programs. But but I think that you just have to move forward with what you have and don't get overwhelmed by, oh well I've got to I've got to stand up a program, you know, within within six months or a year. I sort of like don't put timelines around my work. Sort of like go where the momentum is <laughs> is how I, I phrase it. So I feel like when some when someone comes to me and has passion or interest, then I'll sort of go in that direction and and let the momentum lead. So yeah. I, I think that's that's so true because you it's kind of organic in a way how things get built because sometimes you have a resource you didn't anticipate like maybe your ag extensions that becomes a really valuable resource that you might not have even anticipated at the beginning. I wanted to just go back and ask you about your residents uh, when you have residents in your I said, is it in your Bogalusa clinic that you have? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did, how did you get connected with the ability to have residents in Bogalusa? So after Hurricane Katrina, the residency program moved over to Bogalusa and, and the pediatric clinic basically is where the residents rotate through pediatrics. So it's already sort of been set up since Hurricane Katrina. And so I just take it upon myself to make sure that they all graduate with a very strong obesity training. <laughs> and uh, that's sort of like what I'm known for. But yeah, it's it's really nice working with residents because they have the time, you know, they can they can go in the room for 20, 30 minutes and spend time with them when I might not be able to in my pediatric clinic. And so that's really a benefit. And then they're learning as they go as well. So it's, it's a win. It, it is definitely a win-win. And I so admire that because I think that, you know, there are colleagues of the future and uh, you're, you're augmenting their training in obesity. So Katie, tell us um, a little bit about where you, you hope, you know, you have a foot in both worlds here. You're very active in your community. Where do you hope obesity treatment can go? You know, we've all been working in this field for a long time trying to move treatment along. Where where do you, I, I'm not to put you on the spot, but to put you on the spot, where do you see obesity treatment and what would be your hopes for obesity treatment as we move into the future? I, I think we have, obviously we have to address it from all angles. I think from the medical community standpoint, I have a vision that all pediatricians would feel comfortable prescribing anti-obesity medicine. Just like we can prescribe antidepressants, but we don't all feel comfortable. And just like we prescribe ADHD, you know, and these type of more specialized medicines, it's not hard to learn the medicines. Um, and so I think that's one thing because you definitely have to understand that 
sometimes a lifestyle change is not going to be enough. And so we have to be able to offer something more. And a lot of states don't have these multidisciplinary clinics to refer to. So that's one one dream I have. And then now with Qsimia coming out, it's the oral medication 12 and up is for obesity. It, that's something that easily pediatricians can start prescribing. The second thing I sort of feel like is we really, we need more community programs. And I think that sort of thing takes time, but I would love to see more nonprofits and uh, more community programs sort of take this on as something something that's part of their mission. And then of course, the big picture is is policy and, and public health. We know that that WIC has reduced the younger children's obesity rate. So I'd love to see something in the public health field. So that's sort of something I'm still learning, but something where it, it affects, you know, across the population level, more obesity rates. But I, I think that five years, 10 years, we're going to be in a whole different place because of all the different medicines. And for example, now we can treat four different genetic causes of obesity with emsivery. And so I feel like the the medical side of things is just is just going to grow. But what I want to see is that more pediatricians are engaged, more providers are engaged in doing this work and sort of we put our biases behind us and, and just say, hey, this is something medical, like we really need to address this. And it's so such a, a, a good vision that that obesity treatment becomes just part of what we do as pediatricians. And uh and we are able to offer that to all the children. So as we sort of wrap up the podcast, anything else you'd like to share with our colleagues as as we wrap up? Something I I just keep popping in my mind is um, empowering the patients to go out and be their own ambassadors in their community. So I had a teenage patient I saw last week He's actually done really well. She she didn't tolerate loraglutide injections. She can't afford Qsimia. You know, she definitely qualifies. She's got hypertension. She's on the medication. She's got severe obesity. But for her, all she's got right now is lifestyle change. And it's working, but it's slow. It's real slow. But you know what she told me? She said, you know what? I want to do something for my friends. I said, okay, what do you want to do? And she said, I want to create a 30-day a, a challenge. So her and I thought about some ideas and we said, let's do a Facebook group and we'll co-lead it. So I said, I empowered her. I said, why don't you set it up and just add me as, a, as an add-on? And now I'm really hoping that that might catch on. You know, I think just empowering the, the kids who are successful, empowering them to go on and to be a, a beacon of hope in their community to the other, the other kids in the community. So that's something I would love to see us have more patient advisory boards, more patient involvement, family involvement in the guidelines for obesity and really figure out what do families feel like they need, letting them lead us just like we do with motivational interviewing, let the family lead, not so much us telling them what to do, but let, letting them help tell us as providers what they need. Well, Katie, I love that so much. And it just brings to mind before we wrap up, we invited a group of families into our, our clinic for an evening meeting. We provided dinner and we were we were inviting them to say, tell us what we can do better to help you in clinic. And they said, they basically said, they came with siblings and everybody. And they basically said, no, no, we're, we're happy with clinic, but can you help us with the schools? Can you help us with the community? They were so activated. Can we bring our neighbors? I mean, I think there's this huge reservoir of desire for the patients to themselves to become involved. You know, not all patients, but there are patients and families that really would like to be involved in some kind of advocacy in an, in being ambassadors. So I think you're right on with that. You're really right on with that. 
So Katie, thank you so much. You're a very busy physician. I'm just so appreciative of your, your time with us on this podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sandy. This was really fun. I enjoyed talking with you. Yeah. Take care, Katie. Thank you for listening to my conversation today with Katie Queen. I hope that you were able to take away some practical strategies on how to move obesity care and treatment forward in your practice. As a reminder, there are many resources to support your capacity building and CPG implementation efforts, which you can find on our website, www.ap.org slash obesity CPG. resources, or opinions expressed during the Conversations About Care podcast series are solely those of the individuals and do not necessarily represent those of the American Academy of Pediatrics. The topics included in these podcasts do not indicate an exclusive course of treatment or serve as a standard of medical care. Variations, taking into account individual circumstances, may be appropriate. The primary purpose of this podcast is to explore common themes related to quality pediatric care from the perspective of clinicians. This podcast series does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Advertising, which is incorporated into, placed in association with, or targeted toward the content of this podcast without the expressed approval and knowledge of the American Academy of Pediatrics podcast developers is forbidden. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast.